Last week we began Galatians 3 in verse 1. And, and really, last week, this week, and next week all belong really to a, a singular argument, uh, a singular thought that Paul is going to put forward. And so, um, really, it continues through chapter 3 and chapter 4 as well. But to recapture that, just worth briefly, Paul's argument, where he moves to Abraham and explains based on Abraham his argument. If you remember, in verse 1 he begins, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Paul has been exercised, he's been a little exasperated since the beginning of his letter. If you remember Galatians 1, right after his reading, even in verse 6, they're astonished that you're so quickly turned away from the gospel. He, he's coming with a lot of emotion. He, he's, he's, a, he's at the end of himself a little bit. And so it's been a sense it kind of becomes, he's saying, well, what is with you people here? Uh, oh, foolish relations, who has bewitched you? This idea of bewitching, there's a, a play on words here that I want to set for us again because I think it will help us as we continue on in Galatians 3, is that idea of what has caught your eye? What has captured your gaze? I saw a commercial maybe two or three weeks ago. I think it was Toyota. I'm not sure. But it shows this uh, lady. She's sitting in a conference room, and there's, you know, the conference room is just full of gray suits and gray pants suits. Everything's sort of black and white, except this girl, she's in full color. She's sitting here. <coughs> And there's some guy with a power plant just droning on and on and on. And as she sits, she turns and gazes out the window, and up comes a Toyota. And then it is a girl who's wearing a California vest and hat. There's a couple of kayaks on top of her, you know, sort of that should be of some sort. She's got a little retriever in the next seat. And this girl, you can see here the guy talking slowly, this guy gives a boring speech. Fades out to nothing, and she's locked in on this Toyota. And then he goes to this mental image she has herself, running through the woods, and you know, <clears throat> going kayaking and all this stuff. And then, as the you know commercial comes back, she kind of gets snapped to where this guy's still going on and on. It's that idea of she's in the middle of this, something has captured her gaze, she's locked in on it. It's drawn her in. This Life, if you could just get that blue Toyota, her whole life would be a totally different person. Um, <clears throat> and so it's captured gaze. So that's kind of what he's saying here. What, what's bewitched you? What has caught your eye? Has drawn you in? Has captured your gaze? So he continues in verse 1 because it was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That idea of publicly portrayed is not. Again, it's not saying they were eyewitnesses to it. It's not saying he painted a, a, a picture or sculpted some image. He's saying that it was vividly, I, I, I painted this picture for your mind. He was preaching the gospel. I vividly portrayed Jesus Christ and crucified. That's what captured your heart. That is what, what opened your eyes. That is what took you in. Is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I vividly, I carefully, I thoughtfully preached the gospel, Jesus Christ. And as you saw Christ be crucified, this gospel message of all this laboring, laboring pain for him, that's what was before their eyes. It was vividly there 
the Spirit opened their eyes. They knocked off the scales of preaching the gospel. It softened their heart, and they, they saw and they believed. And he's saying, that caught your attention, that held your gaze, that gripped your heart, the preaching of Jesus Christ, and crucified. But so simply, something else has caught your and he more than hints that it's this deception, it's the great deceiver who does this to us. That we all experience this at some level in our own journey of faith, where we're captured by the gospel for a moment. And where we see it, and it's, it's moving, and our, our faith rests in it. And, and then something kind of captures our attention a little bit. And it begins to grip. We don't even feel ourselves moving away before long, what is capturing your attention is, is something that's a little more manageable, a little more measurable for them. We see in verse 3 what it is. Are you so foolish, Paul? Ask them, have you done by the Spirit, are you now being protected by the flesh? Okay, okay, that's fine. I'm not going to try to undo your, your moment. We know that it wasn't a work of the law. It was Jesus Christ proclaimed, the gospel proclaimed, him crucified. That's when the Spirit opened your eyes. That's, that is when you had that moment of faith. Okay, fine, fine, fine. But let's turn the gaze away from Christ, away from His accomplishments, and let's turn it to something we can do, something more measurable, something more tangible, something more controllable for us. Let's just say works of the law. The circumcision, the sign, the Old Testament sign that was given. And so what we saw last week is this idea that they're getting two things wrong. The first is that they're taking this idea of works of the law. We can even put it in a context for us, maybe of, of how the law will work in our Bible sanctification. And what they're doing is instead of it being justification as always the grounds for our righteousness before the Lord, that is Christ's righteousness accounted to us by faith alone. They're saying, okay, maybe you can enter in that way, but now you've got to do all this other stuff if at the end you want to still be right with God. It, it depends upon your words. It depends upon everything you add to it. And it's just seeing fruit that's specific in its, in its, its good place, in its rightful and needful place. They move it into this wrong category of justifying. We say, that's, we looked last week, why? That's upside down in so many ways. And so he labored with them that from the beginning and the middle and at the end, your entire Christian journey, your standing of righteousness before God, your acceptance before God is always through faith in the accomplishments of Jesus Christ on the cross. Nothing replaces justification along the way. And so that is where this argument has come. <clears throat> now Paul knows who he is talking to, who this letter is written to. And so what might seem like a bit of an odd pivot here in verse 6, to all of a sudden introduce Abraham, well they've been calling for works of the law. They've been calling that circumcision is necessary. That there's something that needs to be added to this gospel message for you to really be right with the Lord. So Paul, in a master stroke, decides, I'm going to take your key witness, Abraham, 
I'm going to make it my witness. Instead of arguing over here, he says, okay, you can have Abraham and the Old Testament patriarchs. I've got something brand new. He's going to say, no, we want to talk about Abraham. Let's talk about Abraham. And I'll build my case on Abraham. So that is what he does here. From the beginning, you see that Paul is not going to argue the case that to, to be a child of God, he'll just assume is the same as being the son of Abraham. He's not drawing a line between the two. He's going to say, okay, to be a child of God, you have to be a son of Abraham. Now let's look at Abraham. So let's just follow his logic here for our next few minutes together. Verse 6. He says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Quotes from the Old Testament. So to back it up, if you see, remember, at the end of Genesis 11, we just a few months ago went through Genesis 1 through 11. At the end of Genesis 11, you have this table of nations, this genealogy laid out. Right at the end, you just see the Abraham God's name. That's it. And then you get to chapter 12, sort of out of nowhere. Abraham's not a great man of righteousness. He's, he's not done anything. You just see God in Genesis 12 come to Abraham. And he makes this promise. Abraham, listen to verses 1 through 3, 1 through 4, Genesis 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Hebrews 11 then provides a commentary on this movement of Abraham. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham up and leaves, and the writer of Hebrews would tell us, it is by faith that he hears that command, and he moves forward. But we continue with Abraham, and the Lord, some years later, then he sends another promise, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And, and this one is, is more unbelievable, really, than the first one. Genesis 15, verses 3 through 6. Abraham, to say is unable to have, is an old man at this point. Sarah is an older lady. So you can't say old lady. Older lady, old man. And He's yet to have, you know, this promise of a great nation, this inheritance, but he's yet to have a son. So he's saying that Eliezer of Damascus, that this guy, you know, he will be mine, but he'll receive my inheritance. So he's going through this in verse 3. Abram's, Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. That's that Eliezer he's referring to. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the number of stars, if you are able to number them. 
Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. In verse 6, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the promise of the Lord, and it was credited to him, it was counted to him as righteousness. This is before Genesis 17, where circumcision is even introduced, this idea of circumcision. It's not based upon him being circumcised. It's not based upon any works he's done. It's not based upon his walking. What is Abraham's righteousness based upon? He believed the promises of God. And by his faith, believing in those, credited to him a free gift of righteousness. Though it was his by faith. This is explained further for us. We look at a couple passages in, in Romans. You can just listen. You can put it there if you want. But Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What did he gain according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. When, when Abraham was counted as righteousness, credited righteousness, he was an uncircumcised Chaldean still. And Paul said, okay, You had this moment, you had the, the Spirit came and opened your eyes. You, you know it wasn't by works that, that you experienced this initial justification, as it were. But now you're, you're, you're wanting to turn, well, what did Abraham do to justify it? Well, he was, he was circumcised. Paul was saying, no, no, no. If you want to be a son of Abraham, here is how Abraham received his righteousness. It was by faith. This is later in Romans 4, verses 9 through 10 of Romans 4. It says, Is this blessing, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Speaking of justification, or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So Paul continues this argument, and then he gets to verse 7 in Galatians 3, as he, as he continues. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Alright, so to, to be a child of God is to be the son of Abraham. Okay, how was Abraham counted as righteous? It was by faith. So how are you going to be considered a son of righteousness? Also, by faith. Listen as, as he continues in, in Romans 4 one more time. Verses 21 through 25. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul says, okay, 
you're trying to draw this line of what it means to believe in Christ and to rest upon this the, the gospel that is so carefully and vividly portrayed to you. And you're trying to draw a contrast between that and what it means to be the son of Abraham. And there's all sorts of parts of the law, there's circumcision, there's all sorts of ethnic requirements. And so you're drawing this contrast. And Paul is saying, no, I'm going to take your star witness here. How did Abraham become a child of God? How was he counted? How was he credited righteous? It was by faith. Verse 7, we just read, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And then he continues in verse 8, In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Back to Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. Listen to this one more time. It says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you will I curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul is clear. He says the gospel has been proclaimed to Abraham beforehand. And it was this by faith he was counted righteous. And everyone from all nations, you will be counted righteous the same way Abraham was by faith. It, it begins to go for us. There wasn't a, a different gospel. Yes, they looked forward to Christ. Abraham had a full idea of, of the gospel events and what exactly that would look like. But we know he had some, we see in Genesis 22, and only where he speaks about God and being raised from the dead and God providing the man. But it was shattered as he looked forward. And yet it was his faith in the promises of God that justified him, that credited his righteousness. Paul is saying from the very beginning, that was the God's proclamation for all people, all time, everywhere. It would be in Abraham, as a son of Abraham, you receive righteousness the same way. And then verse 9 goes with this. So then, those who are of faith blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What is the blessing of Abraham? What is that blessing? The inheritance of the promised land we received is righteous. Adoption into the inheritance of eternal life. Be a child of God to have Christ's righteousness. There should be a way to end of this as we argue who's the real son of Abraham and what does that mean? To be a real son of Abraham is by faith believe the promises of God. To be a son of Abraham is the same thing to say that you are a child. 
Yes, with the masses. 
Thank you. 